Welcome to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Christopher Flannery, who writes and narrates the American Story podcast. For 30 years, he was a professor in the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University. Professor Flannery is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute and a contributing editor of the Claremont Review of Books. For more than a decade now, he's been telling stories about American lives and places in ways that captured the imaginations of his podcast audience and stirred in them memories of what we love and ought to love about America. I recorded the interview from Kane Academy's headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Chris Flannery joined me from his home in Worcester, Ohio. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Chris Flannery, welcome to Kane Academy. It's so great to see you, and you're uh, you're visiting us from Worcester, Ohio, I understand. That's right, and it's great to see you, Andrew. Thanks so much for inviting me to this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, we've had email exchanges, and, and you know that I am a big fan of the American Story podcast. I listen to them all the time, and we've linked, uh, we've included links to various episodes. Uh, I'd say on uh, you know a good handful of uh, newsletters and uh, things that I post at LinkedIn and other social media. So we're, anyway, we're huge fans. We think you're doing great work, and we're so honored that you would take some time out of your schedule to talk to us about your podcast and talk about history. Uh, two things I know that you love. Well, I'm really grateful for your interest, and I'm a big fan of everything you're doing at the Kane Academy, so thanks for having me again. Thanks. That means the world to us. Well, I thought it would be good to hear about the American Story podcast, uh, or at least to begin to hear about it by hearing about the story of the podcast. So I thought it would really be fun for all of us um, who listen to this series to know a little bit more about you and a little bit more about how you got this uh, beautiful podcast up and running. And it really is a beautiful, it's so well crafted and it's such a great story uh, every week when we, when we tune in. So, so what, what's the backdrop? What's the story of the American Story Podcast? It's a real, a real story, very specific. Uh, and that is, uh, I was a college professor, um, uh, taught for 30 some years. And uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I was thinking about Aristotle, as every sensible person would want to do from time to time. And um, I was thinking specifically about Aristotle's idea uh, of the good and how, and its relation to beauty, and how beauty is the outward glow of inward goodness. And, uh, but that the thing that is really most worthy of love is what is good, but that beauty uh, calls the soul's attention to this love-worthy thing. And now that's practically a, par- a paraphrase of the first line of what became the first American story. So I was thinking about that, and it happened at the time I, I came across, tragically, a story of a young American who had just recently given his life for his country uh, uh, fighting in Iraq. And I started thinking about uh, what it could be in a country that makes it worthy of such a sacrifice mm. as this young man had given. And it, the answer, Aristotle has answers for most things, and it just was obvious, you know, well, it is, it is what, what is good about that country? Um, you know, only the goodness of the country can make it worthy of sacrifices. 
and that goodness manifests itself in in the beauty of that country. So somehow, um, only the beauty of a country can make it worthy of those sacrifices. So that was the first thought I had, and it turned into a story. And again, that was 10 or 12 years ago. And I happened to tell that story in some faculty gathering. One of our administrators liked it and told, asked me if I would record it for Veterans Day because it told the story of this young man. And I did. And, uh, and then she said, well, you know, we have a sound technician, blah, blah. And he, he said, well, we should set it to music. And so we did, and the, the university published it, and, and uh, it was presented at another faculty orientation. Uh, it was played on the loudspeaker for faculty orientation meeting at the beginning of an academic year. This was an occasion, by the way, in which Dana Joya, do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, about? The, po- the poet and the scholar of poetry. Yes. Yeah. Dana Joya was presenting a paper on beauty to this faculty gathering a few hundred faculty members at Azusa Pacific University is where this was. It was the most beautiful academic paper I've ever heard. So the theme of the whole conference, the orientation was beauty. He was giving me the keynote speech. And after lunch or something, they played for those present over the loudspeakers, they played the story of mine there. So that was the first one. It was 10 or 12 years ago. I didn't do anything about it for a long time. Hey, good thing you were there and your recording was played out loud so that, that Dana could, could learn at your feet, right, about beauty. <laughs> Andrew, really, his lecture on beauty was stunningly beautiful. I mean, it was movingly beautiful. And I, you know, it was a real privilege and a real inspiration, perfect way to start an academic year. Yeah. That was the first one, and I didn't do anything about it for years and years. And what year was that again? That was probably... Um, Oh, 2005, no, 2000, no, 2010, about then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, so a little more than a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I might be off a year or so, but that was about when it was. And I remember that because it was when this young man died, which I think was in 2010. So I was teaching at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, they eventually developed an honors college, which is a great books program, great program, and I was teaching in that. Are you an historian by training or a philosopher? I, I, or, or? Uh, I am only partially. I was really I was an English major as an undergraduate. I studied classics uh, and political philosophy um, in a graduate program. Took a year off to study history, so I did a master's in international history, but. But no, I am not a trained historian that way. I'm really uh, kind of uh, a very unsystematic student of political philosophy, I guess you'd say. But a lover of of great books and a lover of history, that's a great combination. Like those two things go so well together and and they're they're both, uh, I mean, when you teach great books, right, you're teaching imaginative and expository works and then you're teaching history, which is kind of a hybrid, but they're... All those letters, all those great humane letters, uh, come together and make for such a powerful um, collection of work, such a powerful presentation of our humanity to our students. So, wh- what a rich experience you've had as a as a professor and a, and as a, a student of the humanities. Well, I've been really lucky, and uh, I don't, you know, all these journeys are in some ways accidental. Mine certainly was, but yeah, I went from English literature to these other studies I mentioned. 
and it, it really was mainly about reading great books I, I, I discovered uh, you know, I, I really found that the world has more great books in it than I'll ever, ever uh, be able to um, you know study adequately yeah. and that's a great a great thing so. yeah well, I love the library that you're sitting in right now that's such a beautiful set of books um, you know, my, uh, you know, my young my young colleagues call these things credibility shelves. <laughs> well, you, you wear them really well, and we're all convinced. <laughs> um, I, I wish every, everybody in our podcast is not going to see what I'm seeing, but uh, everyone should know that, that Chris is sitting before a really handsome set of bookshelves, and uh, I can tell that some of those books are, are old and have been worn uh, by your, your hands and by multiple readings, and you know, some of them are, are a little fresher. Uh, back to this really kind of stunning uh, beginning where you were pondering beauty and goodness uh, out of Aristotle uh, uh, linked to the very moving ex- experience of you know thinking about this young man who, who died for America in Iraq. Um, natural beauty, say you know the Grand Canyon, uh, the, the wheat fields of, of Kansas, uh, the oceans in California and, and on the East Coast, uh, these kinds of things, uh, I'm guessing that you would agree that these kinds of things are more readily agreed upon. People, you know, just everybody loves the Grand Canyon. No matter what your political stripe, no matter your, your educational background, your religion, uh, you just, it's just kind of overwhelmingly beautiful. It just stuns us. Uh, now we get to the, the messier business of, of beauty in humans. Because and, and now we're getting to uh, you know goodness in the sense of uh, the choices that people make uh, constitute the goodness of our lives and and uh, you know people fail and you know people regroup and uh, so the, the the story of our beauty is is a messier story of our goodness. So have you? Uh, and we live in a time, Chris. Right? I mean, everybody knows we live in a time when uh, the. The questions about American goodness are really on the on the chopping block. Uh, at worst, you know, at, at best, it's it's very difficult for for men like you and, and uh, for men like me, uh, people devoted to uh, classical liberal arts education, to to hold up uh, goodness. Um, what do you say about that? What what do you say in in the face of the the difficulty? Uh, that people have in seeing what's good about America. I, I know the one thing you say, of course, is to tell those stories, and you do it so beautifully, but but in terms of your thought and your, your insights about that, can you share something? Yeah, those are good thoughts. Um, well, the first thing is that um, it is human nature objectively to admire what is good and to recoil from what is evil or ugly. I believe that. That's just a fact. And um, But I think that we are, it's possible to miseducate ourselves so terribly that we can obscure that really fundamental uh, truth about our, about our reality and about reality itself, human nature and nature. And I think we have done that pretty terribly over the last hundred years in America, in the West in general, and we have taught ourselves uh, to disbelieve in the truth of goodness, the reality of goodness uh, and beauty for that matter. So the great um, 
advantage of trying to make the points that I'm making, if I'm right about this, is that it's true. That is the reality of nature. You're just describing beauty. Beauty is a real thing. And goodness is a real thing. And the truth of that is very powerful. So really, I'm trying, and, and I try not to argue this. I mean, many important arguments need to be made on this subject and have been made, are being made, as you know. I try just to get to it, just to, I try to capture some goodness and some beauty as I think it really is. And I think that there's an intrinsic power in that that is, has some capacity to overcome our, our miseducation. I think that's sort of the, the essential ingredient. Yeah. That's really wonderful. I, I heard it said once that um, you don't have to be perfect to be good. And uh, I, I might add that, uh, you know, we, we can't be perfect. And in, in that in, in the part of the, the beauty of the human condition is that we're working it out. We're, the, the drama of our condition is that we make choices and it can break towards the good, it can break towards what is uh, dark and, and evil. But the, the, the free choices that we make that become a good life or become a better existence as a polity or a society or as a civilization, well, that makes all the difference in the world. That's that's redemptive. It's it, uh, it recaptures and recovers, restores the time. Um, I'm maybe we could go to some of the stories that you've told. I was struck, for example, um, I'm always struck by the, the the men and women you talk about. Uh, I remember your uh, podcast about John Ford, and uh, he. You know, and I love his movies, and uh, you know, Monument Valley is one of my favorite places in America, and it's just he just has a way of, of capturing the vistas of America, but also the, the you know, kind of the distinctively American personalities, and he works so well with uh, John Wayne, uh, especially. Uh, but but John Ford, uh, you know, as as you tell the story, was not a perfect man. I mean, he was a flawed man, but he also did good things. And, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about John Ford and maybe as an, uh, as an example of what you're talking about, how the, the beauty of what Ford uh, did uh, points, it sort of cuts through uh, the desire to argue about how good he was or, or, or something along those lines, but it, it gets us right to something that's just utterly good and, and utterly worthwhile. Yeah, that's an interesting example. You're right about him. Uh, first of all, one of the great appeals of doing these stories for me is I learn a lot from them, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. Years ago, I loved John Ford's movies, but I didn't know much about John Ford, yeah. and I wanted to. And similarly with some other characters. But yes, John Ford could be really cruel uh, to those around him, to actors working with him. Um, yeah, so a very imperfect man, as you say. But he, he did, for all of that, he did love um, noble things he, he loved uh, noble things in America beautiful things and uh, again not just the, the landscape is really something what he did with Monument yeah. Valley uh, but he, he loved America and I, I think he loved it for the right reasons he um, he grasped something about it so you'll notice in his, in his films you know lots lots of set uh, songs how, how, how big a place music plays in his films um, and he 
I think he really did grasp somehow the, uh, with the genius, um, the conveying the effect of, uh, of a beautiful scene. For example, the paintings and sculptures of Remington, I gather, was very, were very important to him in capturing a cavalry charge or something like that on, on film. He really studied these different paintings to try to get all the shades and the forms and the shapes uh, uh, exactly right. So, um, yeah, there was a very imperfect man who had some genius uh, for conveying um, really beautiful things and not always, I mean, as with The Searchers and others of his movies, there are the harsh realities uh, that he conveys as well. And of course, my stories tend to be, tend to shy away or stay away pretty much from that angle of things. But he is very powerful in conveying, um, yeah, the harsh realities of the world and of America too. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I really like that uh, exposition on him. So the, um, there is a strong impulse uh, towards moralism. People want to look to the past, and they, they're not, uh, not all people, but I think there's a strong impulse, and it's largely stirred up by a, a certain kind of a student and scholar of history who would look to the past not because it's different, uh, and therefore not be open to what might be good and beautiful there, but would look to the past precisely for the failures of human beings. They would zero in on, on the, the darker side of things. Uh, but uh, I wonder if uh, in your ob- in the in the growth of the podcast and in your own discussions with people, your study of history, your your study of, of characters like George Washington, John Ford, uh, Humphrey Bogart, etc. Uh, if you discovered that there's kind of a uh, an, a hunger for uh, history in the sense that people are hungry. Precisely for why you started the podcast—that is, they want to see goodness. They want to see something beautiful, and uh, they, it's not that they're unintellectual and they don't want to hear arguments, but rather there's just a fundamental hunger uh, and kind of a, a longing for hope that would come from just the kind of thing you emphasize and the goodness and the beauty. You know, my uh, my experience with the uh, podcast so far is that yes, there is, and it's a across all age groups for different reasons. I've had uh, some young people, and this is very moving, some young people write and thank me for the podcast, for telling them about things that they had never heard of, that they had known nothing about, and that showed something about America that made them want to know more about it, and that they had never heard, they, basically they said, I've heard nothing but say bad things about the country, and I'm, I'm really pleased to hear this thing or that thing, whatever it might be, and I'm I'm studying more now to find out more about it. So the young people, I've gotten many like that from the younger audience, which is, as I say, quite moving. Older uh, people in different ways express their gratitude because they're not hearing much of that anymore. They have children or grandchildren, and they share share the stories with them, uh, and uh, that is gratifying in another way. So there is that. Um, uh, experience from responses I'm hearing that um, yeah many people and they're not all just from America either some folks from abroad uh, write in similarly but who are, they do hunger for just a reminder of beautiful or noble or good things in the past not because it's 
uh, you know, uh, painting uh, a false picture of the past, but just to remind them of, of these, of the goodness and nobility that can be found in the past. And it's true, the stories do emphasize that. It's not all about that, but that's a very deliberate point yeah. of the story. America is such a big canvas, uh, you know, or, or I could say conversely, it, it's such a big, um, a big library, you know, or a big, uh, a big uh, field of events. Uh, I imagine that helps someone like your, like yourself to find stories to tell. But I, I wanted to put the question out: what, what makes America easy to study? And what makes America, say, difficult to study? Yeah, yeah and I'm not sure. It might be the same thing. That is the, sort of the first impulse is to say, well, America is, you know, it's my country or it's our country. And that familiarity and the fact that it's America's history is in my language so I can read the sources, that helps. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that familiarity, it seems as if... Um, it's accessible because it's not too foreign to gain entry to. So that, there's that ease about it. It's all around you, too. I mean, to travel across America, as you've obviously done a lot, that's another part of it. You're here and you can go see it. And I'm thinking that that may be, uh, leaving aside the kind of, um, uh, what I would say is sort of uh, the misfortune of the trends of history writing in America over the last couple of generations. I think those present a difficulty. <clears throat> but leaving that aside, it may be that our familiarity is uh, uh, something we should be wary of, at least, or have to overcome, because maybe we're too familiar with it. And, uh, you know, what's the greatest book written about America? It's written by a Frenchman who came over here and uh, yeah. toured the country for a bit and wrote it. You know, and there's something about coming to a place uh, from, with fresh eyes from a different view that might be an advantage if you're a genius like Tocqueville. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good. The familiarity can breed, breed uh, a parochialism, right? And kind of, you know, it's sort of almost myopic. It's, you, know, just, you don't ex- expand your experience by, by reaching out to others, uh, observing the past and uh, allowing the past to, to inform you and to your get your memory formed. Um, yeah, I can see why that could be be a real problem. Uh, among You're such a great storyteller, and, and you tell such great stories. I, I, I would love, and I think our readers, or I'm sorry, our listeners would love to hear you talk about the process you use. You know, how do you, how do you decide, decide on which story to tell, and how do, you, how do you start putting it together? You're really a remarkable storyteller. And I, I just well, want to encourage everybody in my audience to listen to more of uh, Chris's stories. Well, thank you for that very kind compliment. Um, I ha- I am very unmethodical, uh, <laughs> so I I follow my interests. It's as simple as that. I I do a lot of reading, and uh, you could say these days research, but anyway, reading, talking with friends, and of course I've been reading and studying for oh many 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 years these days. So I have that you know, things that I've accumulated over the years, you know, with this, like things that always interested me and I wanted to get back to them. So my first method is, it's what what interests me. And that comes to me typically from both reading that I'm doing now and reading that I've done over decades. And these stories give me a chance to pursue that interest, um, you could say, to my satisfaction. And 
and that's really it. And so then I do this. So if I, I, I learn things. So John Ford or Abraham Lincoln, whom I've been studying for 50 years, uh, or Shakespeare in America. Um, when I, if something captures my interest, then I just start reading more, and I find try to find this is try to find the best things written about it, and often also the best. Uh, sources, if it's a document, you know, like Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation or Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, some things, they just are there, these treasures, and you try to uh, show that to the world in a way that will let them see it too. Uh, so it's very unsystematic, a lot of reading, a lot of staring out the window once I've got an idea, and uh, you know, and a lot of words on the page that never get used. I mean, notes after notes after notes. And so, but the, maybe one part of it which might help some listeners who are working like this, for me, the form um, is decisive. When I decided to do these things, I decided they were going to be five to seven minutes long. That means they're roughly 700 to 1,000 words on a page. That's pretty short in academic circles. But to me, that, I mean, if I were writing 5,000 word things, they would be very different. And have a different effect so that's one thing that's critical to me in the, in the process that I know I'm aiming for that length roughly and in that length I want to have one impact I want there to be essentially that one idea one attitude one effect one effect on the heart and the mind comes out of the piece and in that sense they're they're more like you know, not poems or songs, then like academic articles. Um, and that, that, that end result is eventually what is determinative because I want, when I listen to it or see it, I want to be convince myself that, okay, there's one thing there. There's one thing in there that has an impact that's ready to go. Yeah. History is, uh, one kind of storytelling. It's one kind of narrative. Uh, I, I, in the um, early 80s, I worked as a journalist, and a, an older journalist told me to watch a lot of film and to read a lot of novels, and that'll make you a better journalist. And I think he was right. I think I, I listened to people, and I think I saw people more intelligently for, for allowing those, those sources to form me. Do you have anything like that in your own life? Where I know you're a man of letters, and, and it may be a silly question to ask someone who's been reading seriously all his life, but but of late, as you do the American Story podcast, are there regular uh, wellsprings that kind of fuel your imagination? Yeah, thanks. There are, I mean, really, I will say, especially to your young listeners, um, reading, read good things, watch good film, by all means. But reading um, good writing is the best uh, food for the mind and the best, in a way, training for your own writing. It becomes, for example, Shakespeare. Um, read Shakespeare aloud. Read Shakespeare a lot. See him performed. And at least for me, eventually, you will start speaking in iambic pentameter. <laughs> with, with Elizabethan vocabulary and yeah. grammar, it, it just happens. Or, 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 yeah. So that really is it. And I, to re- recharge the mind and the battery, it's, I think doing that constantly is really important. And then I mean, that's good writing, so that's Shakespeare. But um, then there are so many good historians. Um, and so in the work that I'm doing now, I've been reading more 
American historians than I'd ever done in my in my academic career. I'm very happy to be doing it. Yeah. And uh, and there, the things you learned. I mean, the things that you never knew about about the American West or the American Civil War or art in America. Um, just the the learning itself is an inspiration, and you'll there you'll discover oh. I never even had heard of that, and what an interesting and uh, you know interesting story that is. That kind of thing. Yeah, can you name some names? What are some? Uh, can you recommend for us uh, half a dozen uh, story uh, historians of America? That yeah, I'm trying to think a couple that will come to mind right now. But uh, uh, Alan Gelzo is a great Civil War historian. I'm sure you know about him, and he writes well. So he, uh, he's wonderful. I'm on Lincoln right now, so I'm saying it because it's on my mind. Uh, Michael Burlingame has written the, uh, I don't know how you're ever going to get more definitive, uh, massive two-volume work on Lincoln that exists. And he's a library writer. He's a very impressive uh, historian. Um, David Hackett Fisher uh, has written some wonderful, uh, wonderful histories. Um, you know, my teacher, Harry Jaffa, was really a student of political philosophy. Oh, yeah. His uh, writings on Lincoln are unsurpassed uh, as as history, but as, as history and political philosophy combined. And he was a very powerful writer, a beautiful writer, too. So Harry Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided and his, especially that one, I'll mention that. Uh, yeah. Some people um, think that's the most important uh, work of political philosophy written in America, at least in the last 50 years or so. Did you study yeah. with him at Claremont or at Ohio State? Yes, at Claremont. At Claremont. And okay. uh, so um, in the in the 70s, back back in the day, and I lived in Claremont at the time, so I, I knew him for a lot of years. Nice. Did you ride bikes with him at any point? I know he's a serious not biker. Ride bikes with him, but I, I certainly met several of my contemporaries did, and they, they did that because it, if you did that, you were getting to spend hours and hours and hours with Harry Jaffa, and you can actually carry on conversations on those bikes when you're going around this big aerodrome with everyone. Yeah, that's wonderful. Have you uh, discerned among your listeners um, the topics that are most popular, either by doing analytics of your, you know, your uh, the hits on your on your website, or uh, by you know people writing in anecdotally? Do you have uh, evidence of what the most popular topics are, or statistically, do you? Yes, on both things. And we'll go with the statistics. Uh, so we do. There's a team that uh, collects these analytics. It's amazing what you can know about these days. How old are the people listening to it? Where do they live? You know, when do they listen? And so um, without question, the, the most popular story has been one about the most famous Marine in Marine history. And that's Chesty Puller. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that is the, uh, the one that has had more downloads than any other. But it turns out that there are others that are pretty close. And now the average download for uh, episodes is just about 10,000 now, 10,000 for each episode. And, um, but um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, a story on the, uh, on the American Revolution, a story on 9-11, each of those stories, and there are others too, that are pretty close to Chesty. And my sense of it is uh, this. In general, um, if I had to uh, say one thing, the most popular thing would be American heroes. People really who 
and that, and that would typically mean military heroes, people who have offered or given their life for their country, is really uh, people care about that and they yeah. want to read about that. But then I think the reason for that, if you think it further, this goes back to uh, the beginning of the whole story. I think it's because, um, I mean, those sacrifices remind them of what this country is and that it, or that it raises in their minds what it is about the country that makes it worthy of these sacrifices. So they care about Uncle Tom's Cabin or story on the American Revolution, yeah. almost equally to caring about the soldiers who give their lives for the country. And I think the, the reasons for those things are connected. Yes, I think so too. That reminds me, um, on a personal note, uh, I grew up in, uh, mostly in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and, and I had two exceptional teachers, Mrs. Blake in ninth grade, who forced me to, to write my first serious history research project, and it was on uh, Pancho Villa's raid of Columbus, New Mexico, and uh, that set me on a lifetime of uh, studying and writing about history. And then I, my best teacher in high school, though, was a speech teacher named Robert L. Gaines, who was a master sergeant in the Marine Corps. He was at the Chosin Reservoir battle, one of the most storied battles in Marine Corps history. And a uh, very humble guy, but, but you know, hard as nails. And uh, he, he uh, knew Chesty and uh, wow. talked about him. So the first time I heard about him was this would have been, the, the, you know, the mid-1970s. And, uh, but, but Mr. Gaines uh, told his own stories about being surrounded by uh, Chinese fire uh, at Chosin Reservoir. And uh, it, was the, it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, my, my sophomore year. And uh, we asked him, he said, where, where are you going to have Thanksgiving dinner? He said, well, the first thing I do is I'm going to go to Mass. He was a Catholic. He said, I'm going to go to Mass tomorrow morning. And we looked around and said, well, that's kind of unusual. Most, most of the kids, who were, even the Catholic kids, didn't go to church on, on Thanksgiving Day. Well, why do you do that? And he said, well, I made a bargain with God. He said, I was surrounded by enemy fire, and some of my colleagues had fallen already. And uh, I said, if you get me out of this, God, I'll go to Mass every Thanksgiving Thursday the rest of my life. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, he was, he was uh, paying up there the next day. But uh, I talked to him a few years ago, just before he passed, and he was still sharp as attack and recounted the, uh, the whole uh, chosen uh, battle again. And what a, what a wonderful man. That's a great story. Yeah. Uh, and Chosen was an amazing experience. Uh, because I was doing chesty and these other things, I came to know a woman I'd never heard about, Marguerite Higgins. Uh, and she was a journalist uh, at that time, a very enterprising war correspondent, um, you know, a pretty young woman who was a war correspondent and ended up over there uh, in Korea with those guys and wrote about it uh, wonderfully. Marguerite Higgins. Have you done a, a podcast on her? You know, this is really going to be bad. I can't remember because I was, you know, her story captured my interest yeah. so much yeah. and I learned about her, yeah. read books about her. There are a couple good books by her and about her. And I can't remember whether I actually yeah. ended up doing the story. Well, you've got over 100 episodes, right? Yeah. It was like 110, 120 now, something like that. Somewhere around there. Yeah, well, it's terrific. In case my wife uh, brings this in. This is uh, Margaret Higgins. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. I, I, I had not heard of her, and I, I, I don't know that work, so that looks really interesting. Um, well, I, I guess a good way to end things here is is just to ask if, you know, from from your work uh, with the American Story Podcast and your your decades of teaching, uh, are, it, it sounds like you're hopeful. 
it sounds like you know you're you're doing something more than what a, mu- a museum does, and that it, it's more than simply maintaining and preserving for us a set of artifacts in, in the form of, of you know the accounts of these past events. But you're actually, to, to my eye and to, to my heart, you're you're offering your listeners vision, and I want to know is that a, a fair way to describe you know what you're doing, or do you have that experience yourself that there's something deeply hopeful about the whole project? Uh, yes, there certainly is, and people uh, couldn't listen to very many stories without noticing that. And I want that to be there, and I think uh, being hopeful is the only attitude to adopt. Uh, the worse things get, the more hope is needed. Uh, one, of, one of my great heroes is Winston Churchill, yeah. uh, another is Abraham Lincoln. Um, both of these great men faced tremendous crises. Uh, and there was no knowing how those crises were going to turn out. And, um, and they faced the realities for what they were, uh, but they did it because um, it was the right thing to do. They did it because what they were standing for was noble and good, and there wasn't anything better to do. And that option is always there, no matter how bad things get. So I do want to remind all, especially young listeners, to know that about the world. If you look around you and you see things going badly or it's a rough world for you, that, uh, well, it's not, the world is always there needing you to do your part. And there's nothing more satisfying uh, for your own soul that you could do than to take your part in this good world. So that is the spirit of these stories. Well, that's so powerful. That's so moving. And you selected two men who uh, each in his turn uh, led their their societies for whom they were responsible through the worst crises. So Lincoln, the worst crisis in American history, Lincoln led us through that. And the worst crisis in Western history, the World War II, Churchill led uh, the British people, and of course was a statesman, you know, writ large in a sense. He was, he's everybody's statesman in, in, uh, in very important ways. Those are great examples. And uh, they speak to the depth and the height and the, and the, um, the breadth of the American Story podcast. We, we couldn't be happier and, and more honored than to have had you spend some time with us. And I know our listeners are going to love hearing from you. Uh, thanks again so much, Chris Flannery, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. Well, Andrew, thank you. It's really my honor to be here talking with you, and it's been a real pleasure. So yeah, thanks. thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Sources. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Christopher Flannery of the American Story Podcast. You can hear Chris narrate his beautiful stories about American life by visiting theamericanstory.org. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our producer is Helen Gaworski. This is Andrew Zwerneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks again for listening to Sources. Sources.